In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Throughout history, mankind has endured. As a nation of immigrants, the United States was built upon the notion that human beings are resilient. Time and time again, we have proven our ability to overcome the most difficult of times, poverty, war, and yes, previous pandemics. The greatest generation, born from the Great Depression, fought in World War II, and left a lasting legacy. Fast forward to the last two decades. We now have helicopter parenting, participation trophies, elimination of grades and education, all done in an attempt to protect feelings or build confidence. Instead, we have created more emotional pain and a lack of coping skills. On today's podcast, we discuss resilience. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin with my boys here, Sean and Kelly. My boys? <laughs> hey! I was going to say my brother and my brother from another mother. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Let's timestamp this a little bit. We just got through the 4th of July weekend. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the 4th of July weekend, I'll pop on a TV every once in a while. You see a lot of uh, movies, uh, war movies, Saving Private Ryan, for example. Yep. Got me thinking about different generations and um, how they were coping with the challenges of that particular time. And I have to admit that I do have a real interest in history. I'm fascinated by the bravery and the courage that you sometimes see of the settler or the immigrant, um, those who go to war to defend their country. And it reminded me of a moment that I had with my wife's grandfather, who was a, a child of the Depression era and was a veteran of World War II. Um, actually, he uh, was in the Battle of the Bulge. If you remember the Battle of the Bulge, yep. it was yep. a period mm -hmm. of time um, where the United States or the Allied forces were pitted down in a forest area. Bastogne. Bastogne in the dead of winter. Yep. And they had to survive that dead of winter while being barraged constantly with uh, fire from the German army. Mm -hmm. And he was a guy, like many of their generations, that didn't like to talk about that particular period. But when he was alive, and I think I was young at that time, still in my 20s, I had to ask him questions. And the level of wisdom from going through difficult times. Well, I'm surprised he was willing to share those stories because normally there wasn't much conversation happening and you were able to ask questions and he would answer them. Let me clarify. Okay. Yeah, he wasn't willing to go into detail other than the fact that he told me he went through his rations really quickly oh. and he, had to, he was really hungry. Mm -hmm. um, but... As a psychologist, you're interested in things like resilience and coping. Mm -hmm. And I always refer to myself um, as an expert in coping. That's where my levels of expertise are. And he brought up something really interesting in terms of perspective. He said, Roger, when you go through the Great Depression and you survive World War II, everything else in life is easy. Which was a fascinating perspective. He took a lot of risks. He started his own business. Mm -hmm. Um, he invested a lot in the stock market. He took care of his money. He was a bit frugal. 
Is it because he felt like he had nothing to lose? Nothing to lose at that point, right? Like he had been in such a situation where he saw the worst that he needed to just live his life to the fullest. Yeah, I think that was the perspective. Mm -hmm. And I've been reading a lot about Stoicism, um, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius. I think there's this idea of perspective that when you view your life as time limited and you have potentially a very short period of time, and you know you're going to be gone, and you've seen people close to you die. You approach life with a different viewpoint um, because you've been through that suffering. Almost like wisdom only can come from suffering. And I began to ask myself these questions. Are we becoming less resilient as a people, as society, culture, specifically within the United States? Yes, 100%. So um, my perspective would be through education and watching now maybe two generations of students pass through my classrooms. I can definitely say that resiliency is is hard for them to, it doesn't come into their lives very easily. I think that sometimes they don't understand. And we talked about this in other podcasts that it, 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 Failure leads to learning, leads to a better life. Eventually you will, you know, take those skill sets that you have and they will bring you fulfillment. But for the most part, I would say, and blank is a blanket statement overall, I believe that we are creating generations that are much less resilient than have been in the past. I'm going to frame it differently Um, because I think it's about perspective, right? So... Maybe where we are right now in terms of our, our lives, our social status, and because of the sacrifices of the generations in our family before us, um, we are at a position right now where we don't have to struggle the way that they have. Uh, and there are probably a lot of people currently that are encountering the same level of struggle that maybe our family generation did two generations ago. Like our, our, our great grandparents that came here, immigrated here to overcome some uh, adversity and our grandparents that maybe served in a war um, and always wanted to make the lives of their children, um, you know, better um, puts us in a position right now where we're, we're seeing the inability to cope because we haven't really had to endure what they had to endure. I'm kind of phrasing that in a way that I think um, is really, it's our perspective, right? Sure. It's interesting because the luxuries that we have and the standard of living has increased, right? I, you know, I think back when I look at just the settlers, I ask questions like, how did they get clean water? You know, what did they drink to stay hydrated? They had to find their own food. Rum, they drank rum. You see all that alcohol that they drank? Yeah. Yeah. It's like... Actually, we, we, we posed each other this question months ago um, about uh, what's happening in the world today and people, people are, are, are not happy. They may be miserable. Um, there's more depression. There's more suicide. But I, I framed it to Roger as if you could choose a time in human existence, when would the best time to live be? And I said it's now. I know, but I think that's also perspective. Is, yeah. Yeah, I think that that... If you don't know anything, so we learn from history and we know that what our parents went through was struggle. 
And we were always told that struggle is something that we, they wouldn't, they wanted us to avoid. I'm sharing this from my father. My father was um, in the, the Korean conflict served during that time, mm-hmm. um, grew up in poverty, went through the great depression and managed to build his own home, learn the skill sets of him, had his family, led a very fulfilling life, a very hard life. And then told me, uh, one day, I don't want you to have to go through what I went there through. There you go. Yeah. And I now think that that advice might possibly be something that we need to reconsider mm-hmm. telling future generations. That's an interesting question. So here we are now, and I'm most concerned about young people. When we look at the data, we have rising rates of suicide in children and teens at a record level that never existed. Traditionally, young people have been somewhat immune from the depths of mental illness. But yet here we are, increased psychiatric hospitalizations, increased diagnosis of mental illness, increased suicide events for ages 16 through 24 and even younger. What does that tell us? Like, so Kelly, you asked that question. Are our our attempts to try to protect, protect our children, the next generation, from emotional struggle and pain, are we in any way protecting them from the development of important coping skills, problem-solving skills, and ultimately resiliency? So when you look at it from the perspective of emotions, and I think you actually tweeted something out not too long ago about this, and I, I believe this. So emotions can be very hard, and they can be hard to handle. And there's a lot of different emotions. And one of the things I think we're taking away are those negative emotions from people and experiencing them in a way where they can solve and come to a resolution with that emotion, whatever negative emotion comes in. I can give an example with my own son through sports, for example. If he he loves baseball and he's a good player, he's a very good athlete and he's very passionate about it. He gets up to the plate and he makes a mistake And his immediate reaction is always to be completely down. He quiets himself. He won't talk. It's almost like he can't get over it. And there is a negative emotion. Mm -hmm. And we then, our responses sometimes as parents are, it's okay, buddy. Everything's going to be all right. Like We're almost not allowing him to feel and go through what he needs to go through in order to cope with that particular emotion. We're just saying, it's okay. It's What you're talking about, I guess, is uh, the importance of struggle. Right. Right. And then you brought up baseball. And I remember when I was um, uh, very young, I was a horrible baseball player. I think I batted like last in the lineup and I, I really had a hard time, you know, improving. And um, and I wanted to get better. And I, I remember going up to the coach and saying, you know what, do I really need to be the last in the lineup? I'd really like to move up a little bit. He's like, you're good where you are because you you turn it around. So you're usually on base when the when the leadoff comes in. And I knew that wasn't that wasn't true. He was just trying to, you know, make me feel better. Um, and my father responded by taking me in the backyard, you know, working me pretty hard, hitting fly balls, pitching me stuff. And I remember being young and like crying at, to the point of like being exhausted and wanting it to stop. But, you know, time goes on and you improve and you get better. And that's a very rewarding thing to, to go through. And that's just sports. But the idea of struggle in, in, in everything must provide some level of, of important lesson to be learned. So the purpose of going through struggle is to learn what not to do in the future. And I think demonizing struggle rather than promoting it as an experience from which to learn has created generations that exist to resist, that all, resist it at all costs. Yeah, it's interesting. I, 
one benefit I think to having the father that I had is I don't think he really cared about my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I don't think he cared about it. And, and what he meant by that was, yeah, this is life. Now, what are you going to do about it? And that was like the focus, like you can struggle, you can fail, you can be upset, you can be angry. Welcome to life. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to feel this way anymore, what are you going to do about it? Uh, I'll say he, he probably cared about how we were, because he was my father too, but he had- He three, just cared about your feelings, he, not mine. He had, he had <laughs> there was three words he would say, and, and I think we all say it in our lives now, when, a, when one of our, you know- family members, wives, or children are struggling, what do you say to them? Suck it up, right? Suck it up. I mean, those words were said to us repeatedly in our youth, and it was, it was bear down, show a little grit. You know, what, you know what we would think about in my field right now? That would be demonized, right? Because it would be viewed as invalidating. How so? Well, you're, the idea of just suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is viewed within the psychology field as invalidating and potentially harmful. Now, I don't know if that's the case if it's done from somebody who who loves you and cares about you. Mm -hmm. Because I look at myself doing the same thing to my children. Um, That our father did to you. Yes. And I don't know if it's it's suck it up, but the message is the same. Okay? Feeling sorry for yourself and being upset about this does not really serve you well. Mm -hmm. It's what are you going to do about it now? You can feel what you need to feel, but like, where's the problem? What happened and what do you want to do to correct it? But there's this idea of normalizing it in my family, right? Like there's not really this idea of, like, of being depressed. My kids don't use the word depression because they were taught they were allowed to be sad, right? We don't talk about the word failure because failure doesn't exist. Not in our house. It's just like, yeah, I learned something. And this goes back to some of the research that we see on, with Carol Dweck from Stanford University on growth mindsets. Right? What's the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset? A fixed mindset would be when you come up against adversity and you struggle or you fail or you fall short, whatever that may be, if you view that that is some fixed trait of who you are, now I'm a failure, mm-hmm. right? I struck out, so I'm a failure, versus this is an opportunity for me to learn. The differences between the how one person develops with a fixed mindset versus one who sees that as an opportunity is significant on our own mental health, on our achievement. And I see that we are developing more kids who have a fixed mindset. And, let, and you're a teacher, Kelly, and you're a very accomplished teacher. Like we haven't talked about what you've done in your career on this podcast, but you're here for a reason. You've been recognized as a teacher of the year. You're um, I don't know what Apple does is recognizing their education. No, I have a shirt. I saw the t-shirt. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you pointed that out. What is, what, what is a distinguished <laughs> yeah. educator? Distinguished educator. And we worked together for a period of time when I was in the school system. And um, you were by far the most accomplished teacher that I saw in that room because you were innovative. Um, kids liked to learn. And it was a difficult age group to actually teach. And you were able to step outside the box and be able to create these really unique learning lessons and ways of measurement. But going beyond that, um, you also responded to parents in a very interesting way. And um, this idea of a helicopter parent who was so focused on grades and would come in and zoom in and try to protect their kid from any struggle was a problem that we were seeing at that time. And now 
what the, what is the result? Inflated grades, right? Have you seen this in the culture of public schools? And what impact does this have on the development of resilience? So I'm, I'm immediately going to say that they should just basically blow up the grading system as it stands. Because if a kid really wants to just get the A and the parent comes in and puts enough pressure, they'll get that A. Um, there will be teachers who are listening to this, fellow teachers who will say, that's not me, but it is. I mean, let's face it, with enough pressure from parents that are intervening, those grades will end up changing somehow, some way. Now, I don't know that that's um, fair to say for, you know, for everyone, but the problem is we've had <laughs> that one unique uh, person that, you're, that, you, that you are talking about, I believe. I remember telling the parent that they were wrong and that they should stop and that they should stop intervening with his grades. And I think that that was I, the approach that you, yes. Okay. I, but I didn't do it in a, I did it in a very commun, very, um, communicatively. It was not threatening to them. Yeah. I just tried to convince them that by doing that, they're not allowing. It was more collaborative in the way correct. they approached it. It's not, it is not allowing this yeah. individual. But what, what underlie, what drives a parent to do that? Well, why, why would a parent own, come in when a kid is struggling and blame the teacher and try to debate and force themselves upon the school system in order to get a higher grade? The What's system, the thinking behind it? The system, okay, I'm going to answer that. I'm not saying I'm right, but it's the system itself. If I went through the system and I got great grades and now my life is all about success, then I believe that that's what my child should do. And I'm going to defend that at all costs. And if my child begins to lower their grade in some form or fashion, and I have this in my head as a parent that um, I'm projecting my future now, what I am on my son, then they have to do the exact same thing that I did with grades. And that's a big flaw, I believe. And I don't agree with it, but I think that's kind of where, where we're at. I think they're really scared of their kids experiencing sadness, self-esteem related issues. This is part of the self-esteem movement that was built into the schools. Mm -hmm. There was this idea that if kids feel bad about themselves, well, then that is going to increase the likelihood that they will be depressed, that they will for fall short. It's all about like this idea of self-competence and self-confidence. And we're almost trying to artificially build up kids to feel good about themselves. And it doesn't work that way. You can't artificially build yourself up because as soon as you face the adversity that life is going to bring, and life is difficult, life is challenging, you begin to fall apart, right? Um, so we're, we're starting to raise too many kids that are emotionally fragile in response to adversity. You said that they would fall apart, but what I'm, I'm seeing is almost like they're, they're rallying together against whatever is, is you know, being... I'm trying to think of how I can phrase this properly. So um, uh, the idea of cancel culture, right? So if, if something you don't agree with and, and you're, you're encountering it and you don't like it, instead of um, maybe a adjusting the way that you approach things or trying to understand, it's I want to get rid of this thing completely so it's no longer in my life making me feel this way. I mean, well, it's completely you know, unrealistic, right? So... We were in middle school at the time. Correct. The idea of, of parents arguing for grades in middle school to me was ridiculous. It happened a lot though. Right? What are you setting up for your child? You're setting up that everything, when something doesn't work 
in their favor, it's somebody else's fault Mm -hmm. instead of the opportunity for learning. And that's what I mean about emotional fragility, because when you start to, when you don't get the job, when you don't get the A in the college class or the high school class, when you don't make the team, right? It becomes someone else's fault. It's not me, it's the system. And that is really problematic, right? Because then you start to feel, or that kid begins to develop, like everything is outside their control, Mm -hmm. which is really the opposite of Stoicism, yeah. right? If you look back and you read Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, they're they're struggling with the same problems in living that we're dealing with in 2021, right? Life is hard, more hard, you know, much more challenging and difficult at that period of time. But that's again, that's perspective. Um, but they had to deal with death, disease, economic challenges, food shortages war, mm-hmm. right, on the battlefield. And they had, the, the philosophers at that time had to be able to develop a way to cope with that emotional pain and that emotional suffering that would allow them to live a life of purpose and meaning and have some degree of peace. And some of the ideas around Stoicism are to be able to understand that people are not disturbed by things, but rather the view they take of them. Mm -hmm. So it's not the fact that little Johnny got a C in Mr. Weatherhold's English class. It's the view they take of it. It's, it's some, it's as if they are being a, they are victim to you, the oppressor, and you are stopping them from achieving things in life. And it is their job to step in and to control that situation in order to protect their child so they don't have to go through any of the challenges that maybe they have at some point in their life instead of viewing it as just an opportunity to be able to respond more effectively because you can't control what happens to you. You can only control your response. And I just think they're setting up their children when the challenges exist, that they don't have the skills to be able to cope with it. Yeah. So you want to know the difference between one generation to another in terms of parents. So that would have been what's called a helicopter parent. Now there's something, in my opinion, that's even far worse. So at least with helicopter parenting, it was just, I'm going to make sure that I'm looking over their shoulder at all costs. And when something I don't agree with happens, I'm going to intervene. Well, now it's, I'm not even going to allow that person to experience it. I'm going to cut that off before they even get there. And it's called lawnmower parenting. It's going to cut it off before they even experience it at all. Mm. So it would be like this. I would get, uh, and I have not had this happen uh, recently, but let's just say, here's an example. Parent contacts me via email stating that their son or daughter has an emotional something. Maybe they they, they might have um, anxiety. And they're stating that for the sheer, for the purpose that I will make sure that that, student never experiences anything that would trigger that anxiety they're cutting it they're cutting that out or they're with that attempt at through email so it's and roger you framed it early on as like by controlling you know trying to control and prevent pain and suffering of our children are we thus creating more pain and suffering exactly i started to understand where this shift began to happen in culture. How do you go from from my grandfather and my wife's grandfather, both World War II veterans? I didn't even tell the story of my grandfather um, on my father's side, uh, veteran of the Pacific War, World mm-hmm. War II. And when he returned 
he worked multiple jobs. Yep. Uh, seven kids. Yep. One as a nighttime janitor, the other as a door-to-door salesman. Yep. To try to send his children to a Catholic school in Philadelphia, St. Joseph Prep, to mm-hmm. give them opportunity to pay tuition. Mm-hmm. All he did was work. His purpose was his children, his family. And what that did is it provided them opportunities. Our, our father went to Lehigh University, ended up being an all-American football player. That opportunity was only provided to him because of the hard work of my grandfather. And I can't imagine he ever felt depressed in his entire life. The idea of viewing his self as being an anxious person that could stop, that could be controlled by that fear wasn't even in his mentality because he didn't have time. He didn't have time to think that way, right? All he cared about was being able to create a standard of living for his own children. And there was a lot of success with our father, his brothers, their family. Mm -hmm. And there's something that I've learned um, just from the way that that side of the family thinks about life, right? Life is something to be cherished. It's time limited. There's deep faith in that, in that side of the family. Mm-hmm. They're all hard workers and they don't, they don't use emotional experiences or fears to stop them because there's almost an acceptance of it. Um, and I, I have to think about how that differs from generations and families that we're working with here um, about just their view of emotional distress. So it's almost like exercise. If you were stagnant for a while, and Sean, you've been stagnant for a while, right? Because you have an infant at home. You, yes. know, you were telling me that you haven't been exercising. It's been over a year since yeah. I've been in a gym, lifted any weights, done all the things that I've been doing since a freshman in high school. So what would start, what would happen to you if you start the process of working out again? Let's say you want to, you want to run another half marathon or another marathon. It would be incredibly painful, uh, followed by two weeks of being really sore, mm-hmm. um, until I overcome that period. And then eventually your body will adjust and you get stronger and then you start getting back to where you were Yeah, in the beginning, time. in the beginning, your experience of that is like, it's suffering. It's, it's horrible. Right. But when you continue to do it over time, your perception of that suffering shifts and you actually start to feel better. They're like a natural adaptation process. Same thing when I jump in a cold pool or jump in the ocean, you initially begin to suffer, mm-hmm. but the longer you stay in it, your body adapts to that. Are we addicted to comfort? But to remember in, in podcast, our second podcast, the number, I believe the number one thing to make your life completely miserable was avoid discomfort at all costs. Right. And so, you know, taking that advice, um, even with my parenting, I'm, I'm trying my best to get my own kids to just go out and, you know, do something that maybe they're, it's out of their purview for that day and just small little things. Cause I think it is important. And I do agree with that. I, I think that, so the question is, are we leading, a, are we leading too much of a comfortable life? And I, I say yes. Yeah, and what's the, are. what's the purpose then to experience discomfort? And so there has to be a greater goal, a greater purpose. The point being is you are going to face hardship in life. If it is novel, if you don't know how to respond to it, it will overwhelm you. That's why even in therapy, when we talk about exposure-based therapies, 
there is a learning process, especially there's this inhibitory learning model of emotion regulation or fear where the actual mechanism of change when you start to face something that you were previously avoiding is you begin to learn that you can handle it. It's not actually the spider you're afraid of or the social situation you're afraid of. You are actually afraid of the internal experience. It's what can happen when you feel anxious. You are afraid that you will do something that will lead to rejection or embarrassment or harm to you. Ultimately, the ability to tolerate distress and to experience those, that anxiety or that fear leads you to accomplish great things. Mm-hmm. So all my clients, and this is the problem with the mental health system, we talk about things like anxiety as a symptom, sadness of a symptom, as if it's like a disease state. It's normal, right? So, we, so in my room, we're going to talk about how can you act with your anxiety? How can you suffer well? How can you be sad but still get up and go to school that day? Still be able to engage with friends? Still exercise? Be anxious and stand in front of that classroom or give that speech or assert yourself. If you wait to try to feel good before you do all those things, you're going to be waiting for the rest of your life. And that's the messages that are being sent now is that all these negative aversive experiences are symptoms of some greater illness state. Why do you think everyone's being driven to psychiatric drugs? Because that's the message. I would say, um, and maybe you can validate this for me, is that eventually in everybody's life, two of those things will be forced upon you. Grief. Mm -hmm. You're going to encounter loss sometime in your life, either a loved one or a pet. Something's going to happen and you're going to experience grief and you have to learn how to cope with it. The other one could be heartache, having your heart broken, being in a relationship and somebody basically saying, I don't love you anymore. You're not important to me. I'm moving on. Those are two things that are very relatable for everybody, right? Eventually, you have to learn how to to cope, right? Yeah, absolutely. And those are, you know, those are situations that are normal to but no, everybody. Nobody can protect you from those things. No. You have to, that has, that's going to be forced upon you in your life and you have to learn how not to in, deal with it. Not unless you sat on the sidelines of life and hit out. You know, like you, if you hit out in your house and you didn't push yourself at all, you just played video games and someone else supported you, there's no other way to be able to live life without experiencing that type of aversive, experienced loss, pain. There's no way. So there is this interesting idea that modern students have being a high school teacher i hear it so i'll bring it up and so you know how when we were younger and what my dad would always say i used to walk to school in you know 12 feet of snow and all that (laughs) um students kind of do not like hearing those struggle stories and they actually are shifting it to say that they are worse off than their parents and grandparents were is this victimization culture because God, I didn't know if we wanted to go get into this at all. But boy, this is a shift that I've seen that I have a hard time understanding. But it's this idea that you wear victimization or struggle with a badge of honor. And the, the amount of people that want to identify themselves as mentally ill or to actually be part of a group to say that they were oppressed by somebody, even in situations or environments where they have great luxuries is a big shift in the way we would think about these things. And that's a difference from our family, Sean. Yeah. Like the idea of ever victimizing yourself, no matter what happened to you was punished in our, in our family. Mm -hmm. Right. And 
Um, there are actual true victims out there. And um, obviously, you know, our heart goes out to those and those people I serve often in my, in my practice. That's not to say that things happened to them that were oppressive or violent or traumatic. But the victimization idea of a mentality is different, right? That's you now identifying that um, that represents who you are as an individual and now controls your identity in the rest of your life. And we see it in the cancel culture because the way that they're responding to this idea of feeling victimized is to try to cancel anyone that they perceive to be in a position of power. Can we go back to something? Um, the idea of uh, our, our family, all right, let's, let's use our family as an example. You know, watching our grandfather come back from World War II, working really hard, doing two jobs, and then raising a family of seven children, and all of them being, you know, pretty successful in terms of, you know, who they are as individuals. What's the importance of a child to, um, to see a parent struggle to, to see the sacrifices being made, um, in a way that, you know, drives the child, um, in this case to, to work harder and appreciate the opportunities being given. Crucial. All right. right. So modeling, yeah, let's frame it now. Um, I think the idea of the workforce has changed, right? You know, is it possible for a child to see a parent, you know, working really hard and struggling if that struggle is sitting at a desk looking at a screen, mm. where in the past it was physically, you yeah. know, exhausting. Working coming, in a steel mill. Coming home and just being completely worn out and just com- just wiped out to the point of just collapsing versus somebody coming home and, you know, maybe cracking open a beer and saying, whew, tough day. Sean, I have an interesting question. I don't know how much you want to get into it, um, but you have you have an interesting story. Um, Kelly, you have an interesting story as well. You're both older parents. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's why I asked the question. So I want to ask some questions because I was looking at statistics about how um, our the current generation, they're getting married later. Yeah. They're having children much later in life too. Um, it used to be you would have children at like, 20, 21, early 20s, up to the mid 20s, it's almost unheard of to really have children after the age of 30. And I think it begins to change the way that one would raise a child the older you are. Can you tell your story a little bit for our audience? And maybe we can use that as a jumping off point about maybe generational differences or age sure, differences in sure. child rearing. So um, met my wife later in life. And when you meet later in life, of course, you encounter the challenges that you would to uh, to, to start a family. Um, we went through eight years of, of trying um, and ultimately uh, succeeded in that eighth year. Uh, but that was lots of, you know, loss and, and failure along the way and, and really trying to, you know, determine whether or not the idea of having a child of our own um, was going to be possible. And we were lucky enough uh, on one last try to, to make it, make it happen. And I've never been more appreciative and, and more in love with a child because of the amount of sacrifice we went through. Um, and, and not just, um, the relationship between my wife and I, but seeing the struggle that she had to go through and everything she had to endure in order to, to bring this child into the world makes me appreciate it even more. And I, I'm, my biggest concern is being overprotective. That, that's what I see. So I watch you now. Yep. You're 43 years old. Yep. 43-year-old father of an infant. Mm -hmm. You're in a much different place 
than when I had my first child. I was 24 years old when I had my daughter. So it's a completely different perspective and place in the world. And I see that your son um, can be treated sometimes like a porcelain doll, right? Like well, I, I should also say he came into the world six weeks early in a NICU for two weeks. I saw him in an incubator for two weeks with oxygen and feeding tubes down. His, and that, that framed things for me in a way that um, the moment I took him home, it was a porcelain doll. And, and in COVID too. Yeah. Um, but what I also mean by that is the enti- your entire life is revolved around him. Yep. And there's a schedule that's developed. Oh, yeah. There's apps that you have <laughs> yes. that you know when he has a bowel movement. I do. I have, I have everyone documented since the day he was born in an app. I can output the file for you. Yeah. <laughs> and you there, keep that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, an anxiety that I see. Yeah. In you and your wife that did not exist for me at that age. And my brain was different, mm-hmm. right? Like the development of your brain is different. So when you look at grandparents, they treat their grandkids different than how they treated their own kids. Yep. Right. So there's some developmental process where like the younger you are, you're just trying to survive. Right. And sometimes, you know, you let kids cry it out or there's no damn schedule. You know, you sleep in the car ride when you have to get to this place or to that place. And then you have more children. All three of my kids were born before I was 30. So the second born has to go where the first one goes. And, you know, life is on the run and you're usually trying to survive financially. I mean, I was working, I think, three jobs, two to three jobs going to graduate school. I could hardly even remember that time. It was just trying to survive. And I wonder how that also influences child rearing if you're older and you're more established um, and how that, that that's different and how you might see your kids, you see life and how you treat them. Kelly, you're an older father as well. Can you tell your story? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar. We were trying for years and then we were able to have our first, um, and I was, was my goal in just to have a family and I love, I loved it. Um, and then we, I tried again and then we, we ended up having twins. And, um, so we, it changed my world. Obviously I don't, I mean, I, we were probably very overprotective. However, I was always kind of had this philosophy of, I just want them to be involved, happy, active. So it was constantly like mm-hmm. weighing on me. I always wanted to be out there doing something with them. Yeah constantly like taking them on hikes going out and doing various things like trying to schedule different things all the time so is there an over responsibility with older parents in order to create a life for their own children because especially if it was harder or more difficult for you to be able to even have them yeah so now there becomes this greater pressure for you to make their lives something really special yes yeah Yeah, i'm already feeling i'm feeling it i mean the 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 kids not even 11 months old and i'm feeling that sense of responsibility to 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 make sure that he has a life that's memorable uh rewarding um and i'm trying to figure out how to make it challenging enough that we don't you know raise a very soft child that can't overcome adversity that's that's a shift you know our parents our grandparents didn't feel that over responsibility in in trying to uh make us experience you know allow us to experience this life like it wasn't our responsibility. Like if we were bored, 
we had to go find someone to play with. We had to go outside. We needed to use our imagination. Now it's the parent's responsibility for playdates to entertain their child. God forbid if they're struggling, if they're upset, right? It can ruin an entire home. And that's like a shift that I'm seeing from even my younger parents. Like it's, it's their responsibility for their kids to be comfortable, happy, and to be experiencing things in life. So, I mean, right now he's, he's young enough that he, he's not going to remember anything that's happened over the course of the last year. But you know, I'm trying to think what healthy habits can I adapt or change in, in myself right now so that I don't, fall, I don't continue this routine. Flexibility. Yeah. Right? I think about this often. How can your kids be flexible and adapt to different situations? Mm-hmm. And I'm probably most concerned about my youngest son because we created this world for him by put it, pushing him into sports. Mm-hmm. And he ended up choosing one path, which is in wrestling. Yep. And wrestling is uh, kind of a niche sport, but it's big here in Pennsylvania. And it's allowed him to travel around the country with other select groups of kids. Got, has all these amazing opportunities, but he trains year, a year round. And he doesn't necessarily expose himself to different people, different groups of people. And does he have the ability to adapt to people who are different than him? Like, is there a flexibility that he could develop through struggle, especially socially? Like, I think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for as far as, like, infants are concerned, um, if your kid can only sleep in the most ideal circumstances, mm-hmm. right, has to be at home, has to be quiet, has to be at a certain time, I think that you're creating rigidity and not flexibility, mm-hmm. right? And if your stress and your anxieties around whether that kid can sleep or not, well, then that creates a pressure and an anxiety in you. And I think children feed off the anxiety and the stress of their own parents. So that's one part that I think we did really well is we did not do that at all. It was you're going to sleep and that's it. And we let them cry and we let them be up in their room. And that was that. And that was awesome because they they self-soothe, they they self-regulate. Right. And that, you know, now I'd like to think, because you talk about, um, we have, um, his daughters will babysit and they think the world of our kids. And it's, (laughs) I love when they say that because it validates the fact that, look, we, you, you were always questioning yourself as a parent, always questioning yourself. But when you hear you know, people say these things about your kids and it, it just means the world to you that, oh, maybe I didn't make as many mistakes, but I'm still trying to be that perfect parent, which mm-hmm. I think is ridiculous, can never happen. There is no perfect parent. Correct. Right? Yeah, because there's no perfect human. To, to, to be a kid and to see um, a broken family or to see two people um, not commit themselves to each other and to leave when times get hard set something up for the way that they view stability. And that's one thing that I have found to be really important in the mental health of children. It's about this idea of security and predictability when you're young, right? When you can build this idea that there's something that's somewhat predictable and understandable, even in challenges, you can learn skills to do so. Conflict resolution is a, is a big one. Um, but what happens like the first time, you know, you're in conflict with another person and you don't have the skills to assert yourself and, and work through it. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Bad mouth the person, run away, ghost them. Yeah. You know, all these things that are happening in society, this, there's less stability in relationships than we've seen at probably any other time in recent history. Yeah. And, and I think you're, you're talking about just society as a whole, but put yourself into um, the business, the corporate world. 
like you are going to have debates and discussions where you are not in agreement. And, um, and I think, you know, growing up the way that we did, you know, Irish Catholic family, you sit around, you hear people arguing all the time. They argue, they have discussions, they have debates, they laugh at each other, they call themselves idiots. Oh, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. At the end of the day, they hug each other and they walk away and they get together again at the next holiday. That's an important lesson to observe. And That's watch. the whiskey talking. <laughs> but those are important things to visibly see. Um, and I, I think I brought that into to my career is um, not taking things personally. You know, yeah. not knowing that we're not always uh, going to be in agreement well, that there's something I can learn and maybe somebody one. can learn. It is from a me. big one, but that's not what is being taught of this generation that's coming. All right, let's transition this. Like, how about in higher education right now? Um, there is a culture that doesn't have a lot of tolerance for opposing views. Right? You almost have to conform to a specific view set view viewpoint in order to survive in that culture. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like other arguments are being canceled and there's things like trigger warnings. Have you guys aware about this yes. type of stuff? Yep. It's this idea Ever, that- if, Evergreen State University, I think you have to look that up. That story is where this whole, the whole thing starts. Yeah, let's deconstruct that a little bit. Like the purpose of tri trigger warnings is absolutely fascinating to me. It's this idea that you have to warn somebody ahead of time that the topic that you're bringing up can generate an emotional reaction as if you are so fragile, you wouldn't be able to tolerate the emotions that come from that human experience. That's, that's dangerous. And whoever develops and supports trigger warnings is harming people. If you're an educator, if you're somehow in the field of psychology and you're promoting ideas like that, that's such a level of ignorance that I can't even begin to understand. They won't view it that way. They'll view it in the opposite way of what you just said. As a matter of fact, I could coworkers of mine would probably tell you that you're the one that's you know not understanding because it's about human connection and it's about saying the right things and it's about not hurting their feelings. It's about diversity. It's about everything. We have the outcomes now. Right? I understand. Like everyone's becoming more but fragile, more ill. I agree. More psychiatric meds. Emotions remember, and symptoms. It's one big giant. They're not convoluted. reading what we're reading and they're not. And you said it yourself at the one podcast, as I said, all of this stuff is out there. Why aren't teachers? Why aren't people? Why aren't professionals reading this? You said no one's going to read scientific research. And are they tools to popular culture? Is that it? Yeah. Because it doesn't make conceptual sense. It doesn't make any logical sense that I would, hey, hey Sean, you might want to step out because I'm going to bring up a, a, a topic here about, um, about loss, about trauma. And I know that you had a hard time, you know, have conceiving. So you might get upset at that, about this. You might want to step out. No, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Just but, knock on the door when you're done. But Im imagine, imagine doing it in a, in a place where intellectual curiosity and learning from other people, you're paying a fortune to be able to be in that environment uh -huh. and someone who may have an opposing view um, is not allowed to share that view. So the idea to have um, debate without it being personal, without hurting somebody or putting somebody down, where does that exist now in our society? Like where do you learn to be able to disagree? 
Yeah, I mean, the idea of a, a university was that platform where you would have... It was these all ab- based off of Socratic seminars. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of free speech being limited at the university level is, is quite scary because then you're just... You have one one viewpoint being communicated and there's no learning there. It's just, this is what it is and you need to... You know, so this goes back it. to, again, I'm going to stick, stay, staying with this topic, but I just want to point something out when we talk about comfort and the way that people live. So this allows those ideas that you just said, saying these right things, saying, I don't want to say this. I just want to let you know that what I'm about to say might offend you. People say that and then they go home and they lead a completely different life. I think it makes people feel better because they go home and they're completely different to say these things and just follow this kind of in-group mentality. Um, I really, truly believe that. I don't think that everybody believes in their heart of hearts what they're saying, but they're going to say it. Another thing I'll bring up about secondary education, I remember um, one, one class, a professor sat there and she's sitting there teaching this. And then you find out that she wrote a book and she wants to sell her book. She wants to sell her ideas. And I'm wondering, and, and the ideas were all about triggering. It was all, it was the first time I'd ever experienced it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It was required reading. Yeah. Right? You're not going to allow us to challenge your ideas. Isn't that the whole point? Yeah. If you're going to publish something, let people challenge it. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I start to think about things in terms of systems and if systems like purposely undermine resiliency, like, is there a benefit for certain systems to undermine your own personal resiliency? I don't know. That that goes into some deep level psychops. <laughs> <laughs> if 95% of our entire population could think for themselves and they were resilient, what would our society look like? Well, just, yeah, I mean, think about this. What, what people turn to when they're feeling sad or they're struggling. So substances. Entertainment. Food. Drugs. Um products whatever brings them comfort sure something to bring you comfort to make you feel better like if you can undermine your own resiliency and get you to question your own value and purpose to the group you can be sold something right we all do it to an extent like like products are like are marketed to us to allow us to be able to achieve something like Mm -hmm. we can present as if we have it all together if we look a certain way Mm -hmm. and this can change how others view us and that allows them to sell their products like the commercials i'm much more now into like finding commercials after talking about uh antidepressants and the chemical chemical imbalance like i'm really attuned to the messages like drinking a sprite right will allow you to be creative Right, they're all they're selling something to you to try to alter your unhappiness. And most of the time it's only that, right? You're just being sold. It doesn't change anything. Well, if, if you understand how the brain works, then you have the ability to manipulate perception by putting something out there in a certain way. I mean, that's what marketing is, that's what politics are, that's what yeah. the idea of uh of of just the way a, a professor may be you know, positioning a class. Well, that's what editing is. Yeah, I mean, so like when we think about things generationally, um, think about the Great Depression and the challenges and poverty and violence that exist. We didn't see suicide rates at the level they are now, right? Like you would think that would be a period of time in human history with high levels of suicide. You almost never saw children committing suicide at that time period. 
And look at where we are now. What has happened that, that kids now see suicide or life so painful that suicide is an escape from the pain and suffering of life? even when they have the luxuries that exist. It's, it's, it's not related to economics. And it's, it's, it's not about um, the differences between the poor and the rich that exist because you see this increasing in, in teens of higher socioeconomic status. So the luxuries that were provided, the quality of life that we have is not leading to improved happiness and well-being. Is it safe to say that generations, my father's generation, grandfather's generation, just ignored the emotions? Like if you had a child and they were experiencing struggle and so they were sad, for the most part, they would say, hey, it'll be all right, get over it, and they walked away. Versus now, parents will focus intensely on that emotion. And I think that, that, that could be a, that's a problem. I would, I would say that contemporary mental health system and thinking in psychology would promote the idea of spending more time thinking about yourself. And I'm going to make the statement, the more you think about yourself, the worse you're going to feel. And I think I have strong evidence to support it because when we talk about attentional control and our ability to focus our attention on what matters, I can tell you the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you will be. Right. So if we're driving people to think more about themselves in this introspective way, to start identifying with their emotions, to view their emotions as problematic or a sign of an illness or something that represents something wrong within you, that's going to drive further misery. While I think if we look back at resilience throughout history is people had a purpose. Mm. And if my grandfather's purpose was to create a life for his children, then working in the hospital as a janitor felt good, right? And I look back at my 20s when I was working different jobs and going to school, although I was sleep deprived, although I was tired, although I struggled financially, I was doing it with a purpose. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have time necessarily to look at my own experience, my own fatigue, my own challenges, my own struggles. And modern society is pushing us to do that more. It's almost a, a self-centered, selfish kind of focused way of thinking about mental health. So a book that I had encountered um, that touches on all of this uh, is uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, um, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And I would suggest everyone read this book. What are the good intentions? The good intentions um, are to say to people everyone's equal like equality you know let's make everyone equal let's i think those are the intentions that are supposed to be good that we're trying to teach an entire generation i think we kind of touched on it in, yeah. a, in an effort to protect people which could be deemed as a good intention it's actually having a negative effect correct uh, so the idea of not keeping score trophy for everybody correct. yeah that's in the book <laughs> who, who are we protecting the losers. <laughs> we're, we're protecting them from feeling what failure is like. Okay. Yes. Yeah. For what greater purpose? For the, um, to me. How is their life better from not experiencing It's that? not, but I, you asked the question, who's it protecting? It's protecting the parents. It's protecting the coaches. The coaches don't now have to deal with any parents that are upset. The parents don't have to deal with encountering the negative emotion that their son or daughter is experiencing. Well, they're framing 
sports at the childhood level as it's just for fun, but it's not. I mean, sports are competition. Competition is to, is you get something out of it. It's, it's rewarding when you're able to to win. Isn't this idea that everyone is equal a false notion? Not everybody's equal. Yeah, right. like equality and opportunity. Yes, but not everyone's. There's people who are better looking, more intelligent, harder working. Thank you for looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What are we protecting kids from? Mm -hmm. If you're going to face a reality where you're going to fall short, where there's someone who's going to be taller, there's someone who's going to be better looking, there's someone who's going to have more money, there's going to be someone who's smarter, there's going to be people who achieve more. What are we protecting them from about this idea that everyone is equal? Well, it, it goes back to the idea of um, self-esteem movement, right? You didn't want them to experience failure at that level. You you were trying. Everybody was trying to boost the self-esteem of their children because ultimately they thought a child with high self-confidence would become successful later in life. So does this bring an era of false confidence? Yes. And the moment you come up against reality, you're just going to crumble? Yeah, I think, sure. what, I think what we're witnessing are people crumbling because they've never overcome adversity. They never had anybody challenge them. This comes from ideas of many publications, books, and things like that. I'm not talking about science, but I'm talking about books where fairness is going to lead to a life of happiness, right? And and so Fair, fairness is different, no, though, Calvin. I understand, but, but, like, but that's where we get all confused. And if you just start bringing us down that line, then we go to where everyone else is going. But as it's a, not about fairness of opportunity, I believe everyone should have equal opportunity. But within that, there's competition. Competition exists in all levels of society, and it actually makes us better. Well, there's skill. There's there's skill involved too. There's there are people that put more effort into into um, developing a skill uh, that makes them succeed more than others. Like exactly. I, I can't go into a session with one of your clients and say Roger's out today, but I got you. Right? I'm going to encounter things that happen in there, and I'm not a psychologist. Um, that are, that's going to come up that I will have no ability to control. And and that would happen in sports too. A pitcher. You know, just, just bring in the catcher, have the catcher pitch and put the uh, left fielder uh, at catcher. Well, we're going to make this work. But he, he came up with a question, where did this all come from? It's, it comes from popular culture, reading, pushing these narratives ahead. And what I meant by fairness is that parents in a generation were taught that bring your children up to, you know, understand equality and fairness. That comes from a universal idea through publications, and sometimes to me, universal ideas seem good on the onset, but they're really bad when you practice it. But there's greater socio-political perspectives here on this, right? Um, when there's when there's greater income in inequality, like the gap between the rich and the poor becomes so wide, there starts bringing up these general questions. Does the is the car mechanic? any less valuable or important than the neurosurgeon? Less important. It depends, it depends on this. Yeah. It absolutely depends on the circumstance. I don't need a neurosurgeon to fix my car. I need a mechanic to fix my car. Okay. So then should they have equal pay and equal lifestyle? Now we're talking about value. Well, it, it leads us to that question. Should the car mechanic have a similar lifestyle to the neurosurgeon. So should they be compensated in the same way? Should society be no, set up in a no, certain... No, because I can buy a new car for X amount of dollars. I only have one brain. That That is valuable. 
There's like, value to that. Right. And so that's, that's like the difficult question because um, there's obviously like different political perspectives that are constantly waging war and they're using media, they're using popular culture, they're using film. Hollywood's a big piece of this social media to try to push perspectives and ideas to try to create a planet and a world that allows us to be able to coexist with the least amount of problems, right? So these ideas are out there and they're beginning to shape narratives in lots of different ways. If you're not aware of how that is influencing all of us, putting us into lots of separate groups. Like we're in a two-party system here in the United States. I don't consider myself Democrat. I don't consider myself Republican. I can't oh, yeah. be placed into one of two categories or boxes. And the, I but think we're the, pushed that way. We are. But if you identify as any one of those, people make assumptions about you. And of that's, course. that's why I don't put myself into either one of those parties either because I don't want somebody to make assumptions about who I am and what I believe. Ask me. Exactly, because if you actually would listen to today's podcast, you might put us to the right, right? Sure. Just because we're talking about things like struggle. We're being critical of things like of identity politics and safe spaces and everyone is equal and protecting kids from struggle or suffering. The idea of mental illness and turning to drugs. We're talking about resiliency and struggles and somewhat this concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, as if we're ignoring many facets of society that are problematic and that would lead to challenges and opportunity. We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about how can we create a generation that is resilient, wise, can have open dialogue, and can then, in that kind of society, be able to make decisions and protect themselves in ways that also help the greater good. Mental health matters, right? If I, if I want to demonize somebody because they have a different idea of something than I do, and I'll never get into any type of dialogue with them, I'll never learn. Think about how our ideas evolve and shape through important dialogue when someone disagrees with you. And I have this great opportunity as a therapist because I meet so many people. And I get to sit in that room, and sometimes we get into really interesting like discussions on politics, on um, their quality of life, the, ec the economies that they live in, the culture that they're from, different races, different ethnicities. And you learn from their perspective. I'm a listener for the most part in those situations, but I learn, I grow. If we shut down the conversation because people are afraid to feel, to be offended, to have a perspective that's different than somebody else, then where are we going as a culture and society? The idea of free speech and openness is under attack. What we're talking about is how do we continue to evolve, right? And, and anybody in their personal life or even in society, if you identify something that may be broken, you know, how do you fix it? So we'll go back to the first question that we posed early on about a conversation that Roger and I had. If you were to choose any time in human history to live, um, when, what would you choose? I, I, I said now, and I still choose now, but then the idea of happiness comes in. So if people living now are unhappy, highest suicide rate, um, teen depression, what did we do wrong and what do we need to do differently? And that idea of struggle and resilience comes up. So how do we adjust the, what had been done for the last 20 years into a direction where we can overcome the outcomes that we're seeing now? What do we need to do? 
how do we remove the parents from the, the child and allow them to fail, to fall, to to struggle, to cry, to experience their emotions? Like these, I'm hoping to learn from this too. You know, I want to understand um, where those failures were so that I don't repeat them. So from an educational viewpoint, the two things that we really need to focus on would be teaching critical thought again in schools, which mm-hmm. is, again, I've said it many times, is not really truly being taught. And we also need to teach communication, effective communication. We talked about conflict resolution, things like that. Those are things that we can focus on, but you have to be able to to do that. You have to be able to have people that are making policy. So mm-hmm. this is, comes back down to what I was saying earlier about a universal idea can sometimes look great until you actually put it into practice. I, I can't remember where I heard it, but I, I love this um, this kind of uh, this analogy. So in, in all of... Um, uh, you know, any, uh, any wild animal, if you watch puppies, right? We'll use puppies as an example. A puppies, when they're young, they wrestle. They bite each other. They tug on each other's ears. And eventually, one of those puppies is going to bite a little too hard. And the other puppy is going to turn around and, and fire back. And that's how they learn how to control. And at what point something goes from play to, to fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, children also need to do that, right? Children need to learn to play with other kids. That doesn't happen on the to, play date. They need to mommy, they, mommy they, step they, in, daddy step yes, in. Yes. They need, <laughs> they need to fight. They need to learn if they've hurt someone, they need to know when to pull back if they've gone too far. And I remember I, my mom told the story that when I was young, I was a biter, right? <laughs> I, I used to bite people and she would warn people like, be careful. He, he might bite you. And then, <laughs> and then one day I, I bit uh, a neighbor, um, an, a parent. And, and my mom said she grabbed me right back and she bit me on the arm. She bit me really hard and I never bit again. I think that's an important lesson, but... I don't know that I'm going to get away with that in education. <laughs> I'm gonna make, I'll try it this year. Now, I mean, I understand the, the greater value and point. Like that if, you're, if you are acting in some way that is not going to yield you any positive result in the future, mm-hmm. the world has a way of biting you back. And in that, you learn. Now, when the world bites back, can you get up, learn not to bite again, and then try to be effective so you don't get bit by that world? Like, are we teaching that? Are we modeling that? Or are we coddling our kids? Like, these, these, these things matter if we're talking about solutions. I have solutions in the mental health world. Like, I am getting active on social media, and I'm telling people not to go into the mental health system, Right? The mental health system, traditionally, historically, people who are seriously mentally ill were a very small percentage of the population. We're essentially making ranges of normal ill. We're forcing them with diagnoses. We're providing them therapies and treatments that aren't that effective, and we're putting them on toxic psychiatric medications. In that entire process, they are beginning to learn what I experience is disordered. That's dangerous. And it goes hand in hand with how we are raising our kids, what's happening in public education, what's the greater messaging in society, that if you view your emotional struggle from a lens of something that's wrong or disordered, as if you can't experience it, you can't tolerate tolerate it, you can't build up an endurance for suffering or struggle, then you are going to feel very fragile with the adversity that life brings, the inevitable adversity that life brings. So if we're going to make changes, it's in systems, it's in education, it's in mental health. 
It's in popular culture. It's in Hollywood. And it's in politics. Are we resilient as a group of people? As Americans, are we resilient? Used to be. Used, we used to be a country of immigrants. And within that country, we also had to assimilate and learn. And we had to start businesses and businesses failed. And to be able to be part of a community, we had to engage with the community. We had to be helpful for others. Everything about society is being divided, right? We're being divided against each other. We're becoming more socially isolated. We're becoming more protective of our own children. So the teacher in the school system is not an advocate. You're dangerous, right? You have this power to choose whether my kid goes to this college or that or that opportunity or that instead of how we used to view it how our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents used to think about it, that you control your fate in this way. You might not always control what happens to you. This is stoicism again. You control your response. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words... I was just thinking about you may make their day. Thank you for listening.